All right. Greg, thank you so much for joining us on the stage. And thank you for our uh, audience who have made it through almost two full days of supply chain and freight excitement and chats. And um, still got one more for you guys. So, Greg, thank you again. Excited to be here. Yeah. We were chatting last week and we managed to talk a lot about meal kits, which seems to be uh, one of those those companies are big... uh, client of your services. So tell us a little bit more, what does it look like behind the scenes to get a meal kit together? Getting a meal kit is a technological challenge. It's a systems integration of the sorts. Um, What makes it challenging is that they've got really stringent needs to get something to the end consumer's door in less than 72 hours, a lot of times less than 48 hours. So it's a very tightly controlled thing of being able to measure demand, being able to predict that, know where all of your inbound ingredients are, come in, package those effectively, zone skip, put those into the final mile and then get them to you in 48 hours where they stay on, on temperature and they're ready to go for their optimal enjoyment. So Shipwell does have some of the top and fastest growing milk kit companies on our platform today. Um, even more so have really come up come into one. Uh, During COVID, they really grew night and day um, as people were locked in their homes during COVID. So they've got a lot of operational challenges um, and they use our our platform and services to help them. Okay. So what does it look like to source uh, for a meal kit versus a grocery delivery? Or maybe not grocery delivery, but a grocery shipment rather. Well, um, The grocery is a very different model than a meal kit model. For a meal kit model, you're typically, you know, you're forecasting demand ahead of time by weeks. They know exactly what their ingredients lists are. Typically around, it could be anywhere of 200 SKUs. A grocery store, even like one of your major chains, might have 250,000 SKUs, right? And they're going to localize distribution hubs in your, you know, within 10 miles of wherever you're at. It's a completely different type of supply chain. The decisions, the operational requirements, demand planning, forecasting, all completely separate when you're dealing with those. Um, they're, they're almost night and day. Okay. Yeah. And we've been, or at least I've been seeing a lot on Twitter about, uh, you know, with uh, the situation in Russia and Ukraine, that we are going to see uh, certain shortages of, you know, foods, especially vegetable oils. Is that something that you're looking out for or that your customers are looking out on? One of our partners has had a a ton of inbound supplier challenges. I think what this has really done, uh, especially in the food market, a lot of people don't realize that um, Russia is one of the largest exporters of different types of fertilizer, ingredients that go into fertilizer. And so that changes the world's food supply. Uh, Interest rates have increased. We've seen the economics change for what people are planting so we're going to be in for a pretty interesting market over the next, let's say, two or three quarters when we see the ramifications of these hit home. Um, typically, for you know a lot of our customers that are dealing with inbound supply chains, they're very good at sourcing you know local ingredients. So you'll you'll start to see most of those things be sourced pretty close to where consumption's happening. Typically, you'll see high, you know, lower run, higher quality goods that have to be manufactured overseas get into these stores. Those are going to be impacted. Um, everything from you know, grains, rices, oils, um, specialty spices, those things are, are they, they could very well be impacted. Um, but a lot of our customers have contingency plans in place to do that. I think it opens up a pretty interesting opportunity for 
certain types of nearshoring or if nothing else, supply chain redundancy and resiliency by a lot of our, our customers. Okay. So we should make sure we're stocking up on certain types of spices, anything else? You know, the, the, the most arcane thing that I've heard thus far is the, one of the largest factory of vacuum tubes. Uh, was actually oh, yeah. impacted during the war. So if you have a, a Marshall amplifier or any other type of vacuum tube musical um, a device, you're probably not going to be able to get a vacuum tube. Mm. So get those if you can. I feel like we must Oil be should be okay for the time being. Okay, that's good. That's good. I feel like we must be surrounded by vacuum tubes <laughs> right now. We've got a lot of speaker systems going. Um, but speaking of that, so another thing we discussed last week was this idea of building redundancy in your supply chains uh, you know, I'm from Detroit, so I've heard a lot about just-in-time manufacturing growing up. Um, but it seems like we're really moving away from that. What's, what's been your kind of outlook on that? Well, I, I think supply chains have come in multiple forms. You know, we've really had made to stock for a really long period of time. I think with the onset of e-commerce, people, you've seen a lot of people put inventory closer to demand. And really trying to understand safety stock at those different levels. So safety stock is really what is what is the amount of inventory that I need to hold at a certain location to account for things like demand variability and lead time variability. And as people have put things closer to you to get to you, they've got to be very good at estimating demand around that area. They've got to be very good at estimating lead time to get there to that area and lead time all the way from manufacturing in some contexts. So I think we've seen an adoption of different models depending on the business that you run. If you're in low margin commodity goods, very similar made to stock that, that, that hasn't changed. If you're in a systems integrate, you know, you're integrating meal kits, you've got just in time, Mm -hmm. you know, orders that are coming from various different places where you're sourcing. Mm -hmm. So those just in time things are, are even more demanding, but I wouldn't say that one's winning out or the over. Uh, over the other, it really just depends on the business that you're type you know you're trying to run and what your objective is as a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is really fascinating hearing people talk about redundancy so much during this conference. It's definitely a shift um, from our last in-person meeting in 2019 when it's you know the idea is low inventories, and now as we've really shifted to how do we build up inventories? How do we avoid all the pain we've been seeing this this past few years or so? Um, kind of along that, along that lines, what, um, how, how are you kind of viewing your relationships with carriers, especially with all the spot market craziness the past few years? How has that sort of shifted how your clients are, are seeing the, the carrier market? Well, there are two sides there, right? We deal with a lot of shippers. We deal with a lot of carriers, LSPs and, and brokerages and freight forwarders. Everyone's kind of have a different tact, Uh, It's been a carrier market for so long. We've seen really constrained supply uh, and we've seen an abundance of demand. So that changes people's relationships with each other. I think this market's pretty interesting. Everyone, you know, I'm not going to repeat what everyone says, but, you know, it's turning more into a shipper market. Uh, Prices are deflating. Carriers are, are struggling and going to quality, going back to people that left them. What this has reminded me, and some, when I first got into this industry, um, people, someone said to me that uh, 
people buy the same boxes, they buy the same tractors, they, they go buy their gas from the same locations. And so shippers largely have the myopic view that this could be a commoditized market. Mm-hmm. But the decisions that carriers make in terms of the people they employ, the operations that they manage their team, um, how they buy and treat their, uh, how they buy their goods, how they treat their people, mm-hmm. really changes that from a commoditized offering to one that is really differentiated in the market. And I think you can see, you know, players that have really done really, really well. I mean, look at Old Dominion's operating ratio mm-hmm. in this market is absolutely phenomenal. Um, those are not those are not commoditized offerings. Mm-hmm. And what people need to realize in this market more than anything is that we're in a cycle. And your relationship matters on on the upside as well as the downside. And those that invested in their relationships, kept that strong through both, have not seen an interruption. Um, They've really doubled down on those investments. But people are at different phases of their sophistication. So you're going to see it play out over the next couple of months. Uh, For a lot of people, you're seeing a lot of people redo RFPs. You're seeing an imminent need for carriers to really understand their network they're going to have to really look at what their dollar per loaded rolling mile is and, and make sure that stays uh, above a certain rate. But it's going to be interesting to say the least how people are going to play out and how they interface with each other over the next, let's say, two or three quarters. What would you say are like the top traits? And we only have a few minutes left, so maybe I shouldn't start off with this big question. But what would you say are kind of the top traits that differentiate um, a well-performing, long-lasting surviving carrier from one that kind of barely ekes it out from from market to market or from peak to peak and so on? Well, it was interesting. Over the last, let's say, uh, I would say almost six quarters, you've seen an enormous amount of entrance into the space, especially on the carrier side in these smaller upstarts. And they're really chasing those, those spot rates, right? If it's over, uh, back, you know, back in 2010, it was $1.65 a mile. It's break even. Now it's closer to something like 213 or even 256. Spot rates are way above that. So anyone that had an asset could probably do really, really well. Large carriers have been around for hundreds of years. They've been in this space. Many of them are even here. And they're exceptionally good at this market, understanding, being able to play the cycles, being able to manage their cash, being able to manage their assets. Um, I do think this is, this is a time when those, those carriers are going to get even bigger. Uh, you're going to see a lot of these smaller carriers lose their, their assets because simply they can't find, they can't plan at the same scale. They can't buy these, you know, maintenance tires, gas at the same scale these other carriers can, and that's going to force them out of the out of the market. And they'll probably run to these, you know, to get a job at these other assets right, if they don't leave the those. space altogether. So I do think it's, you have to take a long-term approach and, you know, not a myopic, what am I doing this quarter approach. And large carriers are exceptional at that. Small ones need some work on how to do that. Right. It seems like there are still... Right now, I've, I've been talking to some small new carriers who are still buying their diesel at the retail rate. And it's like, oh, gosh, you guys, this is not, not going to look good for some of you. Um, and so just with a few minutes left, I'm wondering, we talked a little bit about temperature control last week when we caught up. What does that look like if you are a, if you're a shipper who's trying to move groceries or other kind of sensitive freight? What how can you track your temperature and what did it look like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago before we had the, or maybe five, 
Two years you know, ago? I, yes, I haven't been in 10 years, but um, in the, <laughs> I've only been in this space for around six years. But I can say that when we first started Shipwell, um, our customers face very similar challenges. Mm-hmm. There's generally a lack of visibility, a lack of automation. And what we wanted to do was really create this platform that allowed people to essentially manage all their transportation, get real-time visibility and capacity in, in that space. So we see the intersection of all of that. And in doing so, a lot of our customers want that temperature piece. So to your point, um, it's really hard to get. It's hard to get in a normalized way. There are many different providers, uh, depending on their carrier selection and carrier suite. They might not, they have the really small providers that may not be able to even provide that information. Um, But even the larger fleets struggle sometimes to get that information. It's a benefit, but it's also a liability. So the, the, the holy grail, if you will, is if I can measure this from when that trailer backs up to the door, the trailer swings close and it goes, you understand what that temperature is. You know, we had an ice cream uh, shipper come in and it has to maintain that certain temperature throughout its entire journey from door open to door close. Mm-hmm. And, and if it doesn't, they can't sell it, right? And especially if they're going into a big, big box retailer, which many of them are, mm-hmm. it'll get turned away. And that's, that's a really big loss for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Huge spoilage issues. And, and huge liabilities, not only for the carriers involved, but also the shippers that have to go and get new product to them immediately. Super expensive thing. The gold standard is we want to have that information to manage exceptions before they happen so we can get in front of them and try to do something about it. And, and that's really what people are trying to go to. You're going to see even more of that capability be front and center uh, for, for our cold supply chain, which we're pretty good in the U.S. Is it... Um is it sort of like for me when I order Seamless or another or Uber Eats or some other delivery service, I'm watching that that car approach my house. Is it is it sort of like you can watch you can watch the truck like what temperature is my Precise. is my shipment right now? One hundred percent. I mean, if if they've got the right telematics on the device, they're using some of the the different things on there. You can one hundred percent do that. Um, but still, today, if you would probably look at a hundred shipments, which say it represents the world, I would say the vast majority of those come with a paper slip when they get delivered and said, "Here's what it was." Mm. And instead, it needs to be more real time because people need to be able to manage that and manage those exceptions. Got it. Got it. Well, great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, yeah, we'll keep watching out what's happening in the in your in your space. Yeah, pleasure to be be here. Thank you so much.